Have you ever noticed when you're talking to someone about another person and talking about how skilled that particular person is, whether it be in sports or in academics and politics and the arts, many times we will make comparisons to people who are considered masters in their particular field or or sport. Now, let me explain what I mean. For example, in basketball, those of y'all that follow basketball, you know LeBron James is constantly being compared to another basketball great. And who is that? Basketball fans, you know? Yeah, Michael Jordan, right? And for most of you, even if you don't follow basketball, you know when Michael Jordan is, is brought up, you understand that conversation, right? You know that the, that particular person is being talked about, if he's being compared to Jordan, as being one of the greats, because Michael Jordan certainly is. In, in movies, if a director is referred to as being the next Spielberg, many of y'all, y'all know what that means, right? That means that that director is being placed in a unique and elite category. You wouldn't just say that about, about any director, right? If, if someone's re- referred to as being as brilliant as Einstein or an artist is referred to as the next Pablo Picasso, that means something. And at times we do this, don't we? When talking about how great someone is, we compare them to one who is considered to be the master in their field. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3. Today we are continuing our series through Hebrews entitled, Jesus is Greater. And we are going to learn this morning that the way basketball fans feel about Michael Jordan and artists and art critics feel about Pablo Picasso and directors and film critics feel about Steven Spielberg. The Jews in the first century felt in the same way but on a whole nother level about Moses. In a Jewish person's mind in the first century there was not a greater man to have ever lived than Moses. And here are a few of the reasons why. One is because he had a unique relationship with God. He spoke directly to him. He was the one who saw the glory of God in a way no other had. He was Israel's great deliverer. He delivered God's people from Egyptian bondage out and away from Egypt and toward the land of promise. God worked a great many signs and wonders through Moses as he was delivering his, God's people out of Egypt and also when he was in the wilderness leading God's people toward the land of promise. Moses was also the one who had received the, the law from God and gave it to his people. And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments, but Moses wrote, as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, the first five books of the Bible, known as the law, the Pentateuch. And, and in those books, he tells about our beginnings and how God created all that is and, and that there was a fall that took place. And he talks about how God's people, Israel, were, were formed. And he also, in those books, he gives laws given to him by God that governed everything God's people did. 
Also, in those books, he laid out the plans for the tabernacle, the place where God's presence resided in a unique and special way with his people and the place where the priests would go to stand before God on behalf of his people. So Moses was a very, very special individual. In the mind of a Jew in this day, Moses stood above every other man who ever lived. For all of those reasons and more, you didn't just compare anyone to Moses, just like you don't compare just anyone to Jordan or to Steven Spielberg or Albert Einstein or Pablo Picasso. Same goes for Moses in the mind of a first century Jew on a whole nother level. In fact, they didn't compare anyone, any Jew, to Moses. In this day, Moses was in a league of his own. Well, in the book of Hebrews, the author in Hebrews 3 makes mention of one who is on Moses' level. In fact, he makes the point he is greater than Moses in every way. In verses 1 through 6, the author of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, why make this point? I mean, though Jews in the first century felt this way, I thought the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians. Surely Jewish Christians understand this. I mean, they had to make Christ the Lord of their life to be saved. Why did they need to hear this message? Well, again, context is key. Remember, we've been saying over and over again over the past few weeks through this study, there was a problem with these Jewish Christians that the author of Hebrews is writing to. Though they claimed to be followers of Jesus and were numbered among God's people, they were not acting like it. Jesus had taken a back seat in their spiritual lives. Sound familiar to any of you? They were struggling with complacency. Many were considering embracing other belief systems, thinking that something was amiss in the Christian faith. There were some considering kind of re-embracing their old beliefs and practices as Jews and holding those above and beyond Christianity. The writer of Hebrews is writing to them to make the point that there is nothing missing if we have Jesus. There is, there is nothing better than Jesus. Jesus is better than any and everything else. If you have him, you have everything you could possibly need. He is supreme over all things. All other belief systems pale in comparison to the Christian faith. Old Testament Judaism points to Jesus. All other spiritual beings pale in comparison to Jesus. He's greater than angels, right? And in our passage for today, the author of Hebrews continues with this theme by making the point that all other religious leaders pale in comparison to Jesus. This includes Moses. And he gives three reasons why. In this text, we see three reasons why Jesus is greater than Moses. Number one, because he holds a greater office. He holds a greater office. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our 
confession. I love this appeal that the author makes here. He calls for those in his audience, his readers, his brothers in Christ to consider Jesus. That's what I would like for you to do this morning. Whether you're a Christian or not, I would like for all of you in here to consider Jesus. And we're going to talk more about what that means here in just a moment. First, let's break this verse down a little more, beginning with the first word, therefore. Now, you've heard me say this before, but whenever you see the therefore, you have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? All right? It's very, very important. And what the therefore is therefore is to connect us back to what has just been said. It's a connecting word. The author here is basically saying, in light of all that I've just told you in this letter, consider Jesus. Now, what has he said? Well, he's been talking about the fact that Jesus is supreme. In chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus is God's greatest revelation. In the second sermon, we looked at that he, he talks about how Jesus is greater than angels. He is the king of kings. He is the creator and sustainer of all that is. He is our divine redeemer, the eternal son of God, the supreme one who stands in authority over all of creation. Last week, we talked about the fact that Jesus has identified with us in every way so that we could identify with him. He is our great high priest who is able to bring us to God and make us right with him. The author of Hebrews is saying, in light of all of those things, you ought to consider Jesus. Now, who's he talking to here? You would think a non-believer, right? I mean, that, that sort of sounds like an appeal one would make to a lost person, but that's not what it says here. The author of Hebrews is addressing believers. Notice he refers to them as holy brothers. You who share in a heavenly calling. That's believers, folks. Remember, the the author's audience are Jewish Christians who are struggling with whether or not Jesus is enough, with whether or not something should be added to the Christian faith, whether or not they should re-embrace the old and bring it in and and, and let it surpass the new. Notice the author reminds them here that their, their calling is a heavenly calling. Now, the Jews had an earthly calling and an earthly inheritance. They were to be set apart for God, circumcised on the eighth day. They were to live set apart and holy to God and were to obey Him so that they could remain in the land of promise. Y'all remember that, right? We learn from Scripture that those who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, have a heavenly calling. They are called to be a part of and advance God's invisible yet powerful and precious and heavenly kingdom. And they are promised a spiritual inheritance, eternity in the presence of the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3 that God has blessed us believers in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So the author of Hebrews is reminding his readers that everything we have in Christ is superior. Therefore, the author is saying, you need to loosen your grip on lesser things and consider Jesus. In Jesus, we have a heavenly calling. Through him, we have a spiritual inheritance. All of those Jewish beliefs and practices, hear me when I say this, are nothing without Jesus. Now, they're everything with him, but they're nothing without Jesus. 
They are shadows that point toward his person and work. They tell of, they illustrate the great work Jesus came to do. So in line of that truth, he says, consider Jesus. Now that word consider does not mean if you have time, if it's not too much trouble, if it's not an inconvenience, take a glance Jesus' way. Doesn't have that sort of flighty, weak meaning. It means to gaze intently on Jesus. He is saying, look on Jesus and nowhere else. Keep your focus on him. Do not turn away from him. Do not look beyond him. Look upon him. And again, remember, he's speaking to believers. Believers, this is a message for us. Some say, but we're already looking to Jesus and trusting in him for salvation. Believers, let me ask you this. Are you ever guilty of looking away from him? Looking beyond him? Not trusting in him? Do you see him as he is in all his glory and beauty? Paul says in Philippians 3, Oh, that I may know Jesus. Some of you hear that and you say, Why did Paul long to know Christ? Did he not already know him? I mean, I know him. That may be true, but do you know all there is to know about Jesus to the greatest degree? Do you know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ like Paul prayed for the believers in his day in the book of Ephesians? Believers, I'm going to hurt some of your feelings here this morning, but i got to say this. Like it or not, none of you in here, self-included, have arrived spiritually. I know that hurts to hear, but that's the truth. Every one of us needs to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the love that he has for us. That's why the author of Hebrews tells the Jewish Christians and his audience, consider Jesus, look to him, focus on him, trust in him, cling to him, do not look away from him, do not look beyond him, continue to follow him, grow in your knowledge of him so that you become more like him. If you're here this morning, you don't value Jesus like you should, but you would like to. You don't treasure him like you should, but you would like to. The answer for you is found right here. Consider Jesus. Fix your gaze on him. Spend time with him in word and in prayer. Commune with him. Spend time serving him in his church and sharing him with those around you. Stay focused on him. Why? The author tells us. First, because of the office he holds. Look at the end of verse 1. He says, he is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here the author gives two offices that the Lord Jesus holds. He calls him the apostle. Not an apostle, but the apostle. The word apostle is taken from the Greek word apostolos, which means sent from God. It means to be an ambassador, a representative for God. Jesus is the ambassador. He is the supreme messenger. He is the apostle. Sent from above, from heaven to earth, to testify about what he has seen and heard. Now that makes him better than the apostles, right? The other apostles. Moses was God's representative. 
He was an ambassador, but was not God's supreme ambassador. Moses didn't come from heaven to earth. He was of the earth. Just one among many called by God here on earth. When Christ came, he spoke with the voice of one who had sent him. He spoke of the things he had seen and heard because he came from above. John the Baptist said this of Jesus in John 3, 31 and 32. Look at it up on the screen. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That's Moses. He who comes from heaven, that's Jesus, is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Jesus said this of himself. Next verse, John 12, 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me what to say and what to speak. And Jesus was also a better apostle by far because he did not simply come from above to speak the word of God. But listen, he is the word who was with God in the beginning, John 1. And beyond being the apostle, Jesus is also the high priest. Now this right here shows that he's better than Moses. Though Moses was a representative and a messenger for God, he was not the high priest. Remember, Aaron was. Moses was not the high priest. Aaron was. Jesus is superior in the office that he holds. He is both the apostle and the high priest. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time this morning talking about how Jesus is our high priest. We talked a little bit about it last week. We're going to spend a whole sermon on it when we get to Hebrews chapter 4, okay? So we're just going to gloss over this. But, but Jesus functions in this way as our priest. He made a way for man to be brought to God. That's what Jesus did as our high priest. He offered up the perfect sacrifice, which was himself, right? And he laid his perfect life down for us so that we, through faith alone and him alone, could be forgiven of sin and brought back into a right relationship with God. He came from heaven to earth to bring us to God. Jesus is our high priest. He is our bridge builder. In the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, it uses the word for priest is pontifex, and that means bridge builder. That's a great description of what Jesus came to do, and we're going to talk more about that, how Jesus functions as our high priest later in the study. But the point the author is making here in Hebrews 3 is that Jesus is better than Moses and deserves all of our attention because he is God's supreme apostle and our great high priest. He is the one sent from God to us to bring us back to God. That's what he came to do. He's greater than Moses in every way. Therefore, We're to consider him. We're to set our gaze upon him and not look away from him. The second reason Jesus is greater, number two, than Moses is because he has accomplished a greater work. Look at verses two through four. In these verses, the author is going to do a simple comparison and contrast of the works of Moses and the works of Jesus and is going to show that Moses, though a great hero of the faith and and a faithful servant of God, pales in comparison 
to Jesus. Look at verse 2. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, I want you to notice how carefully the Spirit of God guides the writer of Hebrews here on what to say. Notice he doesn't slam Moses. He speaks favorably of him. Before he shows the great contrast between Moses and Jesus, the Spirit of God through the writer here shows the similarities of Jesus and Moses. He shows that they were both faithful in their service in God's house. We talked earlier about the ways in which Moses was faithful to lead and deliver God's people out of Egypt and give them the words of God and lead them toward the land of promise. But he's not the focus here. Notice Jesus is. He says Jesus was faithful to God the Father. He was. Jesus came from heaven to earth to accomplish the work God sent him to accomplish. Jesus says this in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. While Christ was here, during his earthly ministry, he was all about his father's business. He was faithful in accomplishing the work he sent him to accomplish. The author of Hebrews here says that Moses was also faithful in the same way. He says, Moses also, that's a comparison being made, was faithful in God's house. So get this, Moses, though not perfect, was faithful like Christ was faithful. That is an incredible statement made by Moses, by the way, about him. We're reminded here of how great a man of faith Moses was. Believers, can that be said of you? Would God compare your faithfulness to that of Jesus? Boy, that's a tough question, isn't it? Let me knock it down a few pegs. Are you being faithful in the household of God? Are you faithfully serving him in his church? Are you attending faithfully? If not, you should be. Now, we don't keep a role here, okay? Not that you have to be here every week, but, but you should not be neglecting meeting with God's people as some are in the habit of doing. The author of Hebrews is going to talk about that in Hebrews 10. Are you plugged into the ministries we provide here at the church so that you can get established in truth and equipped for ministry? Are you serving in Christ's church? Are you representing him by being a faithful witness for him in the world? Are you a faithful servant in the household of God? You should be. Well, let's look at the text again. As we said in verse 2, the author of Hebrews is making a comparison between Moses and Jesus, and he shows they're both great men of faith. Here comes the difference, though. Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Why? Why more glory? He says, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house himself. Boy, that is, that is great stuff right there. Moses was great. He was a great, faithful servant in God's house, but he's less than Jesus because Moses is simply a part of the house of God. Follow me. Jesus made the house. He's the builder of the house. Now, the house of God is God's people. That's what he's talking about. In the Old Testament, it's Israel. In the New Testament, it's the church. Moses was a member of God's house, a part of the household of God. So are we. And Jesus built this house, right? 
All things are made by him. Nothing was made that he didn't make. That's talking about Jesus in John 1. He created us. He created Israel. He gave them life and breath and everything. He gives us life and breath and everything. He, he formed them and he built the church. God's people were God's people in the Old Testament because of Jesus. Think about it. The things they did, the things they said, pointed forward to Jesus and the work that he came to accomplish. We are God's people because of Jesus. We are forgiven and made right by God through faith alone in Christ alone. Christ created Israel. He created the church. He provides redemption for all who trust in him. And some of you hear that and you say, but in order to do that, he'd have to be God. Exactly. That's what he says in verse 4. Look at it. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. In Hebrews 3, 3, we are told that Jesus is the builder of the house. And in verse 4, we're told the builder of all things is God. Jesus is God. The writer of Hebrews makes this point over and over and over again. There are people in our world today who who argue that you cannot find evidence in Scripture that says that Jesus was divine, that he was God. Just go to Hebrews. Camp out in the first two and a half chapters. It's saturated with this teaching. Jesus is God, and as God, he accomplished a superior work to Moses. He has a greater office, He has accomplished a greater work. Third and finally, he is a greater person. Now Moses was great. He was great, but Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Look at verse 5 and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There's a comparison and a distinction that is made here between Jesus and Moses. Notice we're told both again, both of them were, were faithful. But Moses, get this, pay attention to the words. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was a servant in God's house. He was not over God's house. He was a steward in his house, and he was a good one. He was faithful. But like those before and after him, he came and went. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son forever. As we said a few weeks ago, I believe we made mention of it last week, again, Christ is is the unique and eternal Son of God. He is the preeminent one, the supreme one who stands over God's people. He stands over us. Believers, we are his house. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying here in verse 6. Christ, God's Son, is the head of the church. And believers, we are his church. Not this building here at 1817 East Rust Street. This building is not the church. This building houses the church. We are the church, and Christ is over us. He's our head. Moses was like us. Now, he was unique. 
He had a unique position. He played a key role in God's kingdom story, but he was still just a faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is better. He is God's son who is over his house forever. A servant is not on par with the son, right? And, and one who is in the house is not the same as the one who is over the house. It's very, very important that we not lose sight of who we are and who Christ is positionally. Very, very, very important. There are some leaders in churches today who act as if they're the head instead of Christ. And they will run off any and everyone if they dare even question their authority. And especially if you try to use God's word, you better never do that. There are churches today busy doing a lot of things, but not very many, spending a whole lot of time doing what God has called for them to do and functioning in the way God has called for them to function in his word. There's a whole lot of this is what I think going on in churches today and very little of this is what God's word says. Listen, there are many in Christ's church today trying to stand in his place, trying to act as if they are over the church. May that not be said of us. May we not lose sight of the fact that we are servants in God's house who are to be standing under the authority of his word. May we not lose sight, church, of the fact that this church is Christ's church. Amen? We are servants in the Lord's house. We are Christ's house. He is our head. Now, how do we know this? How how can we be sure that we are really a part of the house of God? Does it just mean if we're here this morning? Say no. Yeah. No. How can we be sure that that Christ is our head? The author tells us in in verse 6. He says, we are his house... If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In other words, if we stay, if we persevere. Now, some don't like these kinds of passages. They take issue with verses of Scripture like this. Listen, there's nothing I can do about it. All right? It's here. So we got to deal with it. It's God's Word, right? Nothing I can do about it. They don't like verses like like this and verses like what we're going to look at next week, Hebrews 3.14, that says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm till the end. Now, what are we to do with verses like this? what's, What's it saying here? Is it saying that it's on us to keep ourselves saved and that if we've been saved and we hang on tight until the end... We'll be okay. And if not, we got to walk the aisle again. we got to pray the sinner's prayer again. we got to pass through the waters of baptism again and try our best to keep ourselves saved. Is that what he's saying? Are verses like these teaching that it's in our power to save ourselves and keep ourselves saved? Now, some believe that. I sure don't in light of what the rest of God's Word says. It's tough. If you hold to that teaching to maneuver through the rest of the verses that teach that salvation is solely a work that God does, and when he does it, it works. It takes, we are secure in Christ. Listen, if we could save ourselves, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. Read Ephesians 2. Dead people don't come back to life. They don't raise themselves up from death. 
Blind people don't see on their own. The wicked and the wayward don't turn on their own. The Spirit of God uses the people of God sharing the Word of God to change the hearts and lives of the hearer so that they would respond and become people of God. That's the way it works scripturally. And God keeps them secure by His power. We are kept by God. Scripture is crystal clear on this. If we could save ourselves, we wouldn't. Listen, and if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would. If we could save ourselves, we wouldn't. And if we could lose our salvation, we would. It's that simple. We are a broken and fallen people who need God alone to save us and to grow us and to mature us, to work in us, to will and to do, so that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. And as you continue in the faith, that is proof that you are in fact saved. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He is saying, follow me, that a faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at the first. All right? I didn't come up with that. That was a New Testament professor of mine when he was talking about the book of Hebrews, talking about these passages. A faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty at the first. That's what he's saying. Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples for real. Real disciples stay. They keep trusting. They keep following. Do they mess up? Of course they do. Do they get off track? Of course they do. But God's people are those types of people who keep trusting, keep following, keep believing. They get up, they dust themselves off, they get back in the race, get busy living for God. Scripture clearly teaches two things concerning God's people when it comes to salvation. Number one, God's people are secure. And number two, God's people endure. They they persevere. God's people are secure. Once they're saved, they are always saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But their faith is never alone. It is accompanied by good works. Good works are not the root of salvation, but they're the fruit of salvation. God's people endure. Do they mess up? Yes. But they're messed up about messing up, and they get up, and they keep following, keep trusting, no matter what. Real disciples stay they continue to stand continue to trust no matter what and the question i want to leave you with this morning is this are you a disciple of christ for real or are you a pretender are you what jesus called a whitewashed tomb pretty on the outside yet dead on the inside Do you come into places like this and put on a Christian mask and put on a a, a show and say and do the right things? Have you simply made an empty profession of faith or do you have a possession of faith? There's a difference. Have you given your life up and over to Jesus? Is he your Lord? Has the Spirit of God changed you from the inside out? Is Christ who you love? Is he who you long to be like? Is he your hope and your strength? Is he all you need? If not, I invite you right now to make Christ the Lord of your life. Make a turn this morning. Give your life up and over to him. Turn from your sin. Make Christ your Lord today and be saved. Let's pray.